Hello, everyone. I am so glad to be back here with you today. I am Dr. Chris Martinson, CEO of Peak Prosperity. Listen, I do two things in the world, um, all stemming from this one other thing, which is my brain never shuts off. I am an information scout. I go out, I find things, and then what I do is I frame them and bring them back to people so that, hey, so you can understand them and make sense of them. This is a really important episode. Of course, they're all important episodes, but this time... I'm going to do something that may change how you see the world. And if I can do this successfully, then you will have the ability to see things in a way that others don't. And you'll have a sense of what's coming in the future. So let's go there. This is about energy. And in particular, what I want to do with everybody today is we're going to put on our energy goggles. Okay. Once you see things this way, you put on your energy goggles and you see the role of energy in everything in your life, in your standard of living, in your hopes, your dreams, what's possible in the future, how much you can accomplish, the vacations you can take, everything. Once you see it, well, it's a little bit like being Neo in the Matrix when he can finally see the Matrix for what it is. And once he can see the Matrix, once he put his Matrix goggles on, <clears throat> he was able to control his environment and be like Superman. So I'm going to, I'm granting you this superpower and it's really important. So what's it look like? Well, first up, we know from this point in the crash course up to this stage that we have a financial system and by extension, an economic model that's predicated on infinite exponential growth. And what do we know about exponential growth? Well, you know, um, when things are growing exponentially, they tend to speed up at the end. They get faster and faster, right? It's a nonlinear relationship. So you see those charts are like, woo, cruising up like that. We see here in this one, debt running away from income for the United States. And this isn't clearly unsustainable sort of a situation. And it's not a linear situation. Not like, well, it's a little bit worse this year than last year. It is exponentially worse this year than last year. And it's going to be exponentially worser in the future. And because of that, it has the chance of breaking down very, very rapidly at the end. And so that's not going to happen, though. All on its own. Humans will continue to want to have a free lunch. Humans are going to continue to want to print. They're going to want to continue to kick the can down the road. They're going to continue to do everything they can except face the consequences of bad decisions in the past. And that's what the Federal Reserve is doing. That's what your congressmen are doing, senators, all of it. The whole system is just basically like the three monkeys with all of their sensory and communication vehicles closed up because they don't want to talk about this. They don't want to know about it. Fortunately, there are a few candidates coming out talking about real things. So think, since things speed up at the end, we have to understand what is the forcing function that might cause this speeding up function to really get going. What's going to get this party rolling? And it begins with energy. Energy is my first, second, and third horse in this race of the things that are possibly going to force the hand of getting reality back to the dinner table to have a conversation with the rest of us over here who are in La La Land. Okay, so let's talk about energy in the economy real quick. First up, the total energy we have available to us is the amount of energy that we have to, well, do everything, right? So if you were a, and I did a lot of rock climbing and mountaineering back in the day as a younger man, and here's the thing, when you're way out in the backcountry, the amount of energy you have with you is a function of what's in your body in terms of available glucose, glycogen, other available stores, and what's in your backpack. As soon as you run out of either or both of those things, life gets tenuous. And if you're up a certain elevation in the, on a mountain and you run out of energy, nothing else is possible except a retreat if you're lucky. And if you're not lucky, you don't get to do that. So 
energy is the master resource. I'm going to make that case today. And once you understand that, I think a lot of other things become clearer. All right. So you have total energy. Let's imagine we have total energy. There's a, we cut down a tree. It has so many BTUs of energy contained in the wood. We, we open up a coal seam and there's only so much coal in that seam. So let's say it's a coal seam. We start mining that coal and it has a total amount of energy. Now, what do we get to do with that total energy? We have a big pile of coal. What do we do? Well, first thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to use some of the energy in the coal to get more coal out of the ground, right? So we take some of our pile of coal and we dedicate it in that little dark blue arrow down at the bottom there into getting more energy back out, more coal out of the ground, right? We, we have, um, if we're using picks and shovels, it's our own, you know, muscles. It's if we're using a steam shovel or a steam apparatus, we have to use that. Whatever it is, we're going to use some of the energy to get some more energy. Makes sense, right? Okay. And then, you know, if we had like this steam shovel or something, if that's what we're using, or it's it's a modern diesel, you know, big cat D9 dozer that we're, you know, scraping earth away with so we can get to the coal. There's a certain amount of capital involved in getting any energy source, whether it's coal, fossil fuels, natural gas, wind turbines, solar, um, hydroelectric, it doesn't matter. Every one of them has a built machine associated with it that requires some level of capital that you have to pour into creating that machine that took energy. So whatever total energy we have on earth, we have to use some of it to get more energy. We have to use some of it for capital and whatever's left over. Now, this is what makes life interesting. That's why I can talk to you across the airwaves because we've taken some of the energy available to us as humans and we've pushed it off into consumption. And there we see there's two ways it can go, right? First, there's basic living expenses. So you're just going to use some of your energy that comes out of the ground. We're going to use it to grow food, keep our houses warm, you know, basics, right? So that's basic living. And then whatever's left after that, now that's discretionary. You and I have grown up at a period of time when humans have had access to the most amount of discretionary energy of any people beforehand. And that's why life is so amazing and awesome. You may not know this. But you live as well as kings and queens did, even better than kings and queens of, you know, millennia going back, right? Cleopatra had the equivalent of, she had about 50 slaves, they think, you know, running around doing stuff, maybe more, maybe less. You have, if you live in a modern American house, the equivalent of around two to 300 energy slaves working for you all the time, making the lights come on, keeping your fridge cold, vacuuming things for you, all of it, right? It's astonishing. And, and we forget that. But I'm going to bring it back to the front and center because once you understand that, well, then things I think get a lot clearer. Now, energy is the economy. Here we're just looking at oil consumption across the x-axis and thousands of barrels per day. Um, and on the x on the other axis, we're, what we're looking at there is GDP. How much was uh, how, how much was being made? Uh, how much GDP came about, right? So Y-axis GDP, that's the income. X-axis, thousands of barrels of oil per day. So 60,000 would be 60,000, that's 60 million. So starting in 1975, we can see there was about 55 million barrels of oil being burned on a daily basis across the whole world. This is a global thing. And we see that if we look at that 1975 dot, ah, there was like, what was there, like six, seven trillion, maybe uh, we'll round up, we'll call it $10 trillion of GDP. And every one of those dots is a year. And as we go along, what we see here is there's this extraordinary correlation and it's a straight line. 
that if you want to have more economy, if the more GDP requires more oil to be burned, right? It's not just correlative. It's a causative thing. You can't have a larger GDP without oil. And I'm going to make that case for you. And we have to look at it on a global basis now. Because, why? Well, because, you know, Liechtenstein probably has a very high GDP compared to its oil consumption. But it outsources a lot of its oil consumption patterns to other external sources who are doing the manufacturing and shipping and distribution, all that, for the things that Liechtenstein is consuming. So... Um, we have to look at this on a global basis. So when we do that, we got a R squared of point over 0.9, right? So it's a very, it's like 0.932, right? That, that says that if you want to know how much economy there is in the world at any given moment, if you tell me the amount of oil that's being burned, I'm going to give you an answer that is 93% correct, right? 93% explanatory power using using some liberties with how, how that R squared is actually interpreted, but that's close. It's a reasonable interpretation. Like most of the explanatory function for how much economy you have is lies in the amount of oil that's being burned. And let me show you why we, we got to go through this, by the way, another way we could look at this different way, flipping it GDP this time, uh, it, you know, GDP up the Y axis, but oil consumption across the X axis there. And this time, this is just from 2017. Every dot is a country. And here what we've done is we've taken, uh, not we, but this is Art Berman's work out of Labyrinth Consulting. You can see the, the uh, credit down there. I credit everybody always. GDP is proportional to oil consumption. So every blue dot is a country. You take a snapshot and you say, hey, how much oil did you burn and how big was your GDP? Again, this really tight relationship at the country level. So this prior one, this says, hey, if we look across the whole world, that's what we see. And when we look at it, and this is over time, this starts from 1975, comes to 2021. And this is asking the question in any given year, this case, 2017, how much oil consumption and how much GDP? Look at that straight line. This is one of the tightest, most robust economic charts I have. This is an extraordinary correlation here between GDP and oil consumption. And of course there is. Of course there is. And I'm going to make that case for you in just a second. Now, this is total energy consumption across the whole world, across time, starting in 1800, way on the left. This is Vaclav Smil's work, and Our World in Data did a great job presenting this and making this chart easy to understand. On the very, very bottom, that red thing that starts in 1800 and sort of doesn't change through 2019 there, that's traditional biomass. It's like wood, coal, peat, dung, right? Biomass, just stuff you burn. People have been burning stuff for a long time. Someday we may go back to just burning stuff. The next thing, the gray, is that's coal. And then you can see the contribution of coal over time. The next blob wedge is oil. That's in that bluish color. Then purple is gas. Red is nuclear. Next is that light bluish aqua color, which is hydropower. And then solar, modern biofuels, and other renewables and wind and all of that are those little smears right at the very top. They are not yet a huge percentage contribution to the world's energy mix. And by the way, now that you've taken the course up to this point, you've seen the course on exponential growth, you recognize that this is not a linear chart. This is a nonlinear chart. This says that that where after this green chart turns the corner, after that green line turns the corner about 1950, What's happening there is that slope 
everybody who's alive today considers this, and everybody who's in power, I should say, who's alive, considers that to be level territory. Hey, that's just how the world works. We always have exponentially more energy to burn this year than next year. And in the next chapter we're going to discuss, is that is that true? Is it possible for us humans to get more and more and more energy out of the world forever? And the answer, spoiler alert, no, it's a finite resource. Eventually you run out. Oh, well, what's the plan, Chris, for what we're going to do when it begins to run out? <laughs> Which I could tell you we had a plan, at least in the West. China seems to have a plan. Europe, U.S., not so much. Uh, it, it's just the plan is this is going to carry on as is without an interruption. All right. So that's a really astonishing thing. If you could totally just grasp this chart, everything becomes clear. Now, you know what happens <clears throat> when I get on a plane, right? And this is a triple seven plane interior here. A lot of people you get on the plane and it's a hassle and, you know, there's like long lines and there's crabby people and babies crying and the dude next to you is coughing mysteriously without like covering up. It's just, it's just like, ah. but in fact, the whole idea that you can get in a silver tube and this thing has three million parts or more than a million. I don't know what the actual number is in a triple seven, but it has a lot of different parts and every one of those parts has to be working and the engines spool up and this roar happens. And next thing you know, you're in the air and you are whisking along more than kings and queens of the past. Cleopatra never had this capability. King Henry VII did not have this capability. You do. That means you have access to services and features due to energy that you didn't, that, that kings didn't have. So you're, you're living beyond kings. It's amazing. I have gratitude for that. In fact, I'm that guy. Um, when the plane actually takes off, you know, I, I give a little fist bump. Like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I'm that guy. If you've ever sat next to me, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. It's really just astonishing that it works and that I get to like just fly across the globe. It's amazing. But what I do is I look at this and I think about the amount of energy that's in that because there's energy without 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 the kerosene to run those engines. That is a big, heavy paperweight without the oil to make the kerosene. We have no jets. There's nothing else that can do that with that oil density of energy that's in kerosene that allows this triple seven to actually spool up enough energy enough thrust enough power burning enough energy to develop that power so it can go fast enough to develop lift and take off it's really cool so this is just a little uh, there's no sound to this one but this is just showing flights in a single day across the world these are just flights in a single day there were over 200,000 flights in a single 24-hour period when somebody captured this uh, flight radar 24 uh, screen grab from 24-hour period in July of 2018. So one more time, look at that. Every one of those is one of those planes I'm talking about. 200,000 flights in a day. That's astonishing. That's a lot of power. And in fact... I submit to you, if you put on your energy goggles, I want you to just see this thing that's happening here, not in terms of congestion or where we're going or, you know, pollution or any of that stuff. Just forget that. Just think about the amount of energy. Put your energy goggles on and realize what you're seeing here. This is an extraordinary period of time. And all of that, every single one of those flights is due to burning oil, kerosene in particular. All right. 
Second, we might note that a city, look at this beautiful city at night. I look at this, you know what I do when I look at this? I just see energy being burned. I see cities as giant dissipative structures, right? They, they bring in all this energy and, and food and stuff, and they just exude waste. These are waste photons we're looking at, whether we say that's beautiful or not. As uh, Shakespeare said in uh, Macbeth, nothing is ever good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Look at it however you want. I see waste photons streaming back out into the universe. And how did we get those photons? For the most part, barring some nuclear or hydro, those photons were ancient sunlight that came down, got trapped by plants in some way, either single cell algae um, or, or in you know, giant carboniferous forests that became coal. And then guess what? That coal got dug out and then it got put into a boiler and it got turned back into electricity and it's going back out. So photons came down 150 million years ago and now they're going back out to space. That's what I see. In fact, you have to look at this from space to really appreciate the magnitude of what we're seeing, that's astonishing. It's beautiful. This is an actual shot from, from the space station. And every one of those blurs, blobs of light is a city busy um, taking energy and using it, converting energy into photons and off it goes into space. So I, I would invite you to can put on your energy goggles and just see the energy that's being consumed at this point in time. And then think back to that chart where I showed you that we're consuming exponentially more energy year after year after year after year. And that's the program. That's the plan. What if that's not a sustainable plan? What if we haven't made plans for when that plan runs out? What if there is no plan B? Well, then you need to be apprised of that fact because there's big implications to that, to our monetary system, to our food systems, to where you live, eat, work, play, how much opportunity there's going to be, whether or not, you know, people get really disappointed and behave awkwardly, putting it euphemistically as, as social creatures. There's huge implications to this. And that's what I see when I put on my energy goggles. I just see the amount of energy that's being used on a daily basis. It's everywhere. It's like, it's like the proverbial... You know, how do you explain water to a fish? Because the fish is immersed in the water, and so it may not have a sense enough distance from the water to understand the water. It's just is the water. It's in the water. What do you mean, what is water? Strange question, right? Same thing for us with energy. We're surrounded by it. We're immersed in it. It is so prevalent that the only way you can actually get enough distance from it to understand it is through this insight that I'm sharing with you. So we step back. We develop this uh, method of saying, oh, let, when I put on my energy goggles, what do I see? And if you do that, I invite you, like right now, look around wherever you're sitting and try to find one thing that didn't get there because of oil. And you won't be able to do it. Even if you said, oh, here's a stick. I picked it up in my lawn and it's now inside. I did that. Once you understand the role of oil in creating the food that has created you, you'll understand it was kind of involved even in that. All right. So carrying on, um, what about uh, when we think about like a train? Look at this train. This train here, uh, how, do, how much does that even weigh? Imagine, take the locomotives out. Imagine that what we had to do was harness up some ropes and humans. How many humans would you need in order to get that train moving without those locomotives? And the answer is a lot, right? Because, you know, it's just they're extraordinarily heavy and those diesel locomotives do just an extraordinary job of creating a lot of power um, using oil, right? Again, you know, when you put on your energy goggles, you just see the amount of 
energy it takes to move those things around. And by the way, there are trains running every day, all day, 24-7, 365 in this country, in other countries. Trains are just quietly out there moving stuff from A to B. On that top left there, we're seeing uh, um, that's coal being moved. And these are uh, boxcars from trucks. I don't know. Something came in at a port. You plop it on a train because it's more efficient to move these things by train. And then trucks would pick them up again. So, but again, materials, material, materials, materials. Our economy is a giant material resource consuming machine. And we use these machines to help everything move around. Uh, what if we looked at uh, cars, uh, 24-7, 365, everywhere in the world. Right now, there's a traffic jam somewhere. There's cars all the time. They are always running. Trucks, too, carrying humans, cargo from A to B, running all the time, day after day after day. Again, let's not worry about um, the pollution of that, the how, how annoying it is to be caught in a lot of traffic, any of that. Let's just Let's just put on our energy goggles, and we'll just see the energy that's being used. And again, if you want to figure this out, what it's like, just uh, just imagine that you, your car runs out of gas and you have to push it to a gas station. After about three or four feet, you're going to realize how much work your car was doing through its engine, which was consuming this stored energy, which we call gasoline or diesel, if you have an internal combustion engine, right? And, and almost all of these cars, you know, I'd say 99% of these are internal combustion engines, unless one of these pictures is from LA, then it might be a 2% are not. Uh, at any rate, this is, this is reality. 24-7, 365, the world is consuming more and just lots and lots and lots oil. Okay. Well, what about like this? Like uh, this is, this is, you know, there's some of these container ships, right? These things are massive, up to 230,000 tons of displacement, up to 24,000 or more TEUs, which is a 20-foot um, unit on there. So you look at all those units, this is, this is 230,000 tons, just whoo, going from A to B. Again, if you had to like um, get in the water with a rope between your teeth and swim and pull that thing, you'd realize... The amount of work that's being done by the massive, massive bunker oil engines that are down there below midship and uh, running the running the screws on this thing. It's just it's astonishing. So, again, just think of the energy, put your energy goggles on. Think how much energy it takes for that ship to move that one ship to move from A to B. And then let's go here. And this is. um this is uh, shipping in a single day, and uh, that that's just a screen grab of it. That's just ships. Those are ships. Um, most of these are above, you know, they're all above a certain size. And if you drill in, you'll actually see that actually dots are covering dots. There's just thousands of ships plying the waters at any given point in time. Cargo ships, oil ships, you name it, Navy ships, whatever. So that's how much activity is happening. I just grabbed that this morning and uh doesn't matter what day it is because any day you grab it, it's going to look just like that exactly the same um and again put your energy goggles on and just think ask yourself the question how much how much energy is happening and if we didn't have the oil to put into these ships to run them how many of them would still be running and the answer is exactly none of them because we still like it's just it's just we don't have any alternative energy. There's, you can't run these things on batteries. Not now, probably not later, certainly not with uh, battery chemistries that catch on fire when exposed to salt water. Bad combo. Um, so at any rate, there's that story as well. So shipping, 
shipping on land by sh- by truck, by train, by boat, huge amounts of energy, all of which come into silently like water for a fish, your life to bring you all this magical abundance. So we get to be grateful that our plane takes off and whisks us from A to B rather seamlessly and effortlessly with in-flight Wi-Fi now and and things. And as well, we could be really grateful for the fact that all of these things are happening behind the scenes, the trucking, the shipping, the, the trains, all of that happening so that when you go to the store, there's stuff there. It's, it's, it's a cool system. How about, um, mining because you know we're going to have to mine all of these materials that we're going to be using the lithium the copper the cobalt all of that as well other things just to keep our daily lives going as is and that see see that see that truck kind of hard to appreciate the scale of that but here i'll make it simpler that little angled thing across the front of the radiator are stairs that's how you get up into the cab of this truck is you walk across the front of the radiator on stairs that had to be installed because these things are massive. Some of these things carry 400 tons at once. This is an astonishing amount of weight, right? Huge tires. And these things are obviously not running on batteries either. These things are running on diesel. Uh, because why? Because um, diesel is an amazing, high-density, beautiful substance that allows you to really put a lot of energy density into a fairly small package and then do giant things with it. It's amazing. So again, energy goggles when you put them on just look at think about the amount of energy required to build this thing to maintain it to run it and these things by the way these giant trucks are pretty expensive i think they're like five million bucks a pop give or take and so when a company buys one of these things it's a giant capital asset these guys don't go home at night and turn it off and park it and come back the next morning these things are running typically three shifts because you're using that capital investment so it turns out that when you add up all just these trucks, just the trucks, just these trucks in the mining business, around 20 million um, gallons per day of diesel is being consumed in mining in these trucks alone worldwide, right? Because, hey, once you got them, use them, okay? Or, you know, maybe this giant, um, you know, this this is Tachi here. Uh, look at the size of that thing. It's really impressive. Mining is really impressive. It's really impressive that we build these machines, that we run them. And again, leaving all aside all of the impressiveness or whether you have environmental concerns, just set that aside. Think about the energy is required to build this thing, to maintain this thing, to feed all of the people who actually operate that are involved in operating this thing, uh, let alone feeding the machine itself, whatever energy it needs to consume so it can perform the massive amounts of work that we want it to perform energy put the energy goggles on how about this uh yeah your giant komatsu this giant dozer here and look at that big hook on the back down there gonna just scrape and, and loosen things up right this is a massive massive machine and point here is just that energy mining itself is hugely energy intensive so what's been going on with energy in and uh, humans and using resources it's crazy when you look into this this is nuts so december 2020 this article comes out this is in nature and global human made mass exceeds all the living biomass and so living biomass is all the trees all the bacteria all the fish all the every everything living right It turns out when they calculated it, they say, here we quantify the human-made mass 
referred to as anthropogenic mass. Got to have a science-y academic term. And compare it to the overall living biomass on Earth, which currently equals approximately 1.1 teratons, trillion tons. Quote, we find that Earth is exactly at the crossover point in the year 2020. The anthropogenic mass, which is recently doubled roughly every 20 years, doubled every 20 years, doubled. Remember what we talked about with, with doubling, doublings and exponential growth. When you have a doubling, that next doubling has more in it than all the prior doublings through all of history. So when they say, hey, uh, the Earth, you know, the, we kind of doubled you know, the, the anthropogenic mass, you know, that's all the concrete, the steel, the stuff we've moved around that when that has doubled in 20 years, what they're saying is in the last 20 years, humans have moved as much stuff as all humans in all of history have moved up to that point in time, just in the last 20 years. Right. Uh, so yeah, which has recently doubled every 20 years, will surpass all living global biomass on the underlying anthropogenic mass equal to more than his or her body weight is produced every week. So that's for every person on the globe, more than your body weight is produced in, in anthropogenic mass every week. So if you weigh 150 pounds every week, 150 pounds of stuff, is sort of produced by humans somewhere on the planet. That's point one, but but point two, and by the way, just again, forget about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or sustainable or any of that. Just think about the amount of energy it takes to move, transform, mine, crush, sort, transport 1.1 teratons of stuff. And then we're going to take this to the second level of this conversation, which is, again, note the shape of that chart. You are now a familiar expert on these things. That is not a linear chart. That is an exponential chart, and we are taking and consuming and moving exponentially more stuff every year, right? And so the question is, oh, okay, so are we going to double again in the next 20 years? In the next 20 years, are we going to move like as much stuff in the next 20 years as has been moved in all of human history prior to that doubling? Okay, how many doublings are there? In this story before humans are, are like basically moving the whole earth from here to there, <laughs> you know, in orbit or whatever, it, it's, it's obviously not sustainable. And they break it down here and you can see a lot of that is concrete. That's the lion's share of it. Aggregates, for example, gravel. So between concrete and gravel, that's what we do most of. Then there's bricks, then asphalt metals is a little smear on that. And then plastics, a little tiny, tiny smear on top of that. So really, this is just the story of of moving concrete and aggregates and things like that. Right. And this probably given how I'm looking at this now, I don't think this includes the amount of stuff we had to move in mining machines in order to make the concrete or the aggregates in the first place. But this is the story of humanity. We're building like crazy. Again, this takes energy, lots of energy. So if we're going to go through another doubling of this, well, uh, the first question would be, where's the energy for that going to come from? All right, moving on. Can you spot the oil in this picture, which is just a random picture from a random department store? Obviously, you can. All those bottles are plastic. Plastics uh, chiefly only coming from oil. And even the contents of these things, again, oil heavily, heavily involved in almost all consumer goods, particularly the shelves that look like that. 
Clothing. Absolutely. Clothing is almost all oil at this point in time. All the synthetics, all the manufacturing of it, the movement, the distribution, the transport, even if it is cotton, the growing of the cotton, the harvesting, the ginning of the cotton, um, you know, all of that obviously very heavily dependent on energy and uh, oils and things like that. And as well, um, obviously any consumer good, when you just walk into a big store like this, what I want you to do again, take your energy goggles, put them on and just look at this. And I see with little green things like Neo, I just see energy, energy to have that show up and for the people to do the work and for the transportation, the manufacturing, all the distribution, the storage, the building that I'm standing in, the lights that are coming down from the ceiling, all of it's just energy. You get those little green lines again, right? You see? Okay. That's the importance of putting on your energy goggles. And by the way, uh, yeah, let's put them on here. What do you see? Can you spot the oil? Obviously this is a fairly unhealthy aisle to be in, but Hey, that's what we're doing these days in terms we call this food. Most of this food, very heavily dependent on the whole oil structure. Even if you just read the list of ingredients, many of these are manufactured chemical components whose primary core feedstock would have been oil at some base level or a natural gas liquid, right? I mean, you take your ethane or ethylene and then you long chain that and you convert that into other things and do some things, add some stuff. Oh, acetic acid, right? I mean, you know, things happen, right? So chemistry, a lot of chemistry and a lot of chemistry is foundationally started with the petrochemical industry. And you get stuff that looks like this. So there's a lot of oil there. Hey, how far away did each piece of fruit come from? I don't know. You know, you'd have to look at each label carefully, but I bet you there's probably two or three separate countries or continents even involved in this particular picture, but you wouldn't know it. You walk in, you're like $1.89 a pound. That's a ripoff. Like, well, no, dude, this stuff came from a really long way away and probably the coating around these things that make them not rot anymore, the appeal stuff. Uh, who knows, you know, Better living through chemistry, ding, right? Forget all that stuff. Forget of whether it's good for you, unhealthy or not. Just think about the energy required for that little display to show up in your life. And by the way, that, that displays in people's lives all over the world at this point in time. And, it, and all of it requires energy for it to be there. How much? Eh, probably quite a lot. Um, so it turns out it is, quote, estimated that the meals in the United States travel about 1,500 miles to get from farm to plate. That's point one. That's a long way. What happens if we don't have oil and I had to eat stuff that only came from one mile away? Now what's my life like? Very different. Second, there's about 10 calories of fossil fuel energy for every one calorie of energy that we get from the food. So if you eat a hundred calorie, you know, bite of, of a big, amazing triple decker, you know, uh, let's say bacon cheeseburger, right? Like, like if you get a hundred calories in, there were probably a thousand calories of fossil fuels silently, secretly subsidizing that on the back end, the growing, the harvesting, the keeping it cool, the meat cool, transporting it, cooking it. By the time that comes, 10 calories of fossil fuels are hidden in every calorie of food that we eat, that is upside down. It didn't used to be that way. In fact, as recently as 1920 or so, it used to be exactly the opposite. Humans would get about 10 calories of food from investing one calorie of muscle energy back in. You know, you'd get um, a cow, uh, you know, or you had a horse, or you plowed with an oxen, or a human did the work. Whatever it was, there was muscle, there was animal power and human power involved in growing our food. And that actually led to a situation where food was a net positive. Now food is an energy sink. 
It's not a source anymore. It's a sink. It takes more energy to make the energy in food than we get from the energy that is unsustainable. And or we really ought to figure out plan B around that, don't you think? Pretty intense. Okay, so again, forget all the, all the you know, is this a good thing to do, bad thing to do? Is it sustainable? What about our economy? Is this environmentally the right thing to do? Just think about the energy involved in our food. And suddenly things begin to take on a new cast, a new scene in a new light. <clears throat> all right, so here's the summary of our energy goggles uh, section here. First, energy is the root source of all economic activity, all of it energy. If you didn't have energy, none of the rest is possible. Remember I talked about primary, secondary, tertiary wealth, right? Without that primary wealth of having a high net energy, surplus energy source that we can tap into, nothing else is possible in this story. So energy is the master resource. It is the thing. And by the way, oil is the master resource. Oil, because of oil, we can build a hydro dam, which means we get hydropower, which is cool. But you kind of need to have the oil to build the dam, obviously, right? For the trucks and, and the machines and you know, making the um, uh, concrete and moving the concrete, all that, right? Uh, oil is the master resource. So we really ought to have a plan for where are we in the oil story? Because it's not a forever story. It's obviously a temporary story. So where are we? That's what's coming up in future chapters. If you understand that, then you understand lots of things but begins here putting on your energy goggles and i would just invite you, you just look around like where do i see energy once you see the energy in your life though it's really an, it's impossible to unsee it right and you'll see that it's in, it's everywhere it's in all things it's in everything all of life is just the study of energy moving from a to b the energy from the sun the ultimate power source comes down plants convert some of that into chemical energy we convert and other animals convert that chemical energy into all the brilliant things you see around you and on and on. But it begins with the sun, right? So when you study life, when you study biology, when you study economies, you're actually, if you're being honest and you are aware of the water in your fishy life, you understand that you're actually studying energy as a first thing. Everything else is a derivative off of that. So energy the master resource. And once you see energy, it's everywhere. So put those energy goggles on, just take, you can take them off again. But when you're walking around today or maybe tomorrow, you're taking a flight or you're on a road, think about the energy that you can detect that's being consumed around you right now. And then you'll be in a good place to ask the next question, which is well, where does, where does that come from? And that is a great question. Next, uh, because our debt-based money system simply has to grow, or else it's busy collapsing and very unhappy because that has to grow. And because all growth comes from energy, shouldn't we be concerned with the energy that we have available? Like, like how much is there? It should be a simple question. Like how much is left, right? And unfortunately, it's actually not a very well-studied, very well-characterized question. Sure, there's academics working on it. Sure, there are some people who care about this. Are they center of mass? Are they the ones who are invited to be and, and tapped to become our energy secretaries? No. Are they the ones who, who really are driving the ship from a political and a cultural standpoint? No, they don't get it. And when we get to the chapter on green energy, we, we're going to discover that a lot of the people who are nominally in charge basically don't know what the F they're doing and are horribly energy ignorant. So having energy awareness and having some level of sophistication around energy, and there's some things that, are, that we can learn. I've thrown out a few terms that I haven't yet defined, like net energy 
or surplus energy. We'll get there. These are important. They're critical. They're vital. They are the level of complexity that's required, the context that's necessary to make good decisions. I don't think we have people in power that, that get that stuff. <clears throat> Lastly, as a bit of foreshadowing, um, which I've mentioned already, I don't see a plan B anywhere in the West in this story. So we're going to have to figure this out. This is going to have huge impacts. When people ask me, hey, when do you think this forcing function happens? I say somewhere around 2025. And that's principally because of my analysis of the oil markets in particular and what I think I see there. Hey, I could be wrong, but I'm not confused. The data might change and then I will change my opinion. But the data I have right now suggests that somewhere around 2025, things begin to get a little hinky. And between there and 2028, things get really crazy. And it's because of this forcing function that's about to come upon us through this the energy markets and what's there and what's not there. And it's nothing personal. It's just, it's a finite resource and it has a dynamic. And if you understand that dynamic, I believe the future clarifies and becomes clearer. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to move on for our um uh to our for members only uh back at peak prosperity we're going to be discussing how all of this data comes back in through this concept that potentially in the united states we're actually in a in a dictatorship and we're going to be discussing this cucumbers of wrath it's an exciting chapter i can't wait to get there and do this next one so with that thank you very much for listening it has been a real pleasure to be here with you today i can't wait to hear what you have to say Hit like, hit subscribe, leave your comments though, because I read your comments and it helps me understand what I should be talking about next, whether you value this or not. With that, thank you so much. Great being here with you. I'm Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity. See you next time. Bye.